right, if we'll take your Bible this morning and turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, book of Luke, 10th chapter, and as you are finding that this morning, uh, I think probably most everybody in here realizes that uh, storytelling uh, is an art. Uh, some people can tell a story um, and they just, they, they just hook you. Uh, I think some people can read the dictionary uh, and you would just be uh, enthralled uh, in, their, in their reading of the dictionary. Uh, it is a genuine art. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, one of the person, uh, two people who, who stand out uh, to me, two opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, one of them is uh, Jerry Clower, uh, great storyteller. Uh, the other one is one that uh, I knew personally. And uh, I think the fact that I tell you this story uh, tells you how masterful uh, he was as a storyteller. Uh, when I was in high school, we had a, uh, a retired teacher, uh, Dan Boone, uh, who would come back uh, and substitute. Probably most of you uh, in here are old enough. Uh, you're like me when typically when your regular teacher was out, uh, you walk, when you walked in the classroom, the old film projector was sitting there. You remember that one? Uh, you know, the, 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 that old film projector. Uh, and typically it was going to be, you know, the movie wasn't good to start with, and then it was going to skip and do that thing. And, uh, and so it was going to be a really long, I mean, you were glad there wasn't a teacher there, there wasn't any working, but that movie was just painful. But when you walked in your classroom and you saw uh, that Mr. Boone was your substitute for the day, uh, you, man, that was like pizza day in the cafeteria. Uh, you know, that was, you know, that was a good day. You knew it was going to be a good day. Now, that has been over uh, 40 years now uh, since uh, I sat in a classroom where Mr. Boone was substituted because uh, the reason it was such a great day uh, was because Mr. Boone was going to tell you stories. And again, the fact that I remember that 40 years later and the fact that I still remember his stories. Uh, if you can tell a story uh, to a group of high school kids, have them sitting on the edge of their seat listening, and still recall that story 40 years later, um, you are you're a storyteller. Now, let me share with you one of my favorite. I won't do Mr. Boone justice, uh, but this is in uh, memory of a, of a great storyteller, great teacher, great man. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite stories, and as you hear it, uh, you'll understand why, was uh, he told about having a discussion with his son-in-law, uh, who was also a school teacher, about who was the better teacher, uh, which one of them had, which one of them was the most skilled, which one was the best teacher. And uh, Mr. Boone said, uh, told him, said, I can prove I'm the best teacher. He said, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, I've got results. I can tell you from my students that I am a great teacher. And he says, what are you talking about? Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Some of you are not going to know. How many of you got, let me put something in parentheses in here real quick. How many of you remember George Shin? 
George Sheehan grew up in Kannapolis. I have no idea what uh, George was worth, uh, but if he was the original owner of the Charlotte Hornets uh, back in the 80s. Brought the Charlotte Hornets here, uh, just you know, filthy rich, uh, and you know, he, he, you know, I have no idea what his uh, worth was, but you have some idea by the fact uh, that he owned a NBA team. Now, uh, when Dan Boone was telling his son-in-law, I know I'm the best teacher, he says, how? He says, because I taught George Shin economics when he was in high school. Then his son-in-law looked at him and said, that's nothing. You mean that's nothing? George Shin is a multi-millionaire. I taught him economics. Nothing. He said, how are you going to talk teaching George Sheehan, economics. He says, I taught Dale Earnhardt, driver's in. I think he won. Storyteller. You know it's in heart. Uh, greatest storyteller ever, we know, uh, was Jesus Christ. We're going to take the next few weeks, and God just kind of laid something, uh, I laid this on my heart a few weeks ago, uh, and look at some of the parables, some of the stories uh, that Christ told uh, during his uh, earthly ministry. Uh, we call his stories, again, Parables, God stories, they're uh, parables. And uh, what exactly is a parable? Uh, the specific definition, one of the specific definitions uh, of a parable is a story uh, that is intended uh, to illustrate an attitude or a principle. Uh, a story that is, in, that, uh, is told to teach an attitude or uh, a, a principle. Uh, it is a type of story uh, that is dedicated uh, specifically uh, to teaching the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, again, it's a story that, uh, that, has, uh, that everybody is really familiar with the parts of the story, um, and, but uh, they actually are illustrating something far larger. My, my definition, the one that's not mine, I, I don't know who I heard this from uh, to begin with, uh, but it's one I've operated with uh, for many years of a parable, is it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. When you read the parables, one of the interesting things uh, about the parables is we read them today and we still understand and can identify with the story that is being told. Uh, the story is still relevant. The earthly side of that story uh, is still relevant uh, today. Now, the lesson that is teaching is on a higher plane. And... <clears throat> This morning, uh, as uh, we begin looking at them, uh, we're going to begin with probably one uh, of the most recognizable, uh, well-known parables in the Bible, and that is the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, a story that when we read it, we read the story of a man uh, who is uh, traveling and is uh, attacked by thieves, uh, beat up and left by the side of the road to die. Uh, 
we see several people who come by, uh, look at him in his condition and pass on by, uh, and eventually we see uh, one man who comes along and, and helps him up and takes him into town and gets him the medical care that he needs. There has not been a time period since Jesus told the original story uh, when someone heard that story and didn't go, I don't get it. Uh, they understood the, the characters. They understand the story. And that's one of the beauties uh, of the parables uh, that, uh, that Jesus told. Now, what we're going to do this morning is something that uh, typically we don't do uh, when we look at the parable, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to back up and get a running start at it. I want us to look this morning uh, at the back story. What was going on before Jesus told this parable? And then we will eventually uh, get into uh, the parable uh, itself. So uh, buckle up. I've got to move fast because uh, get used to that for the next few weeks because uh, these are uh, long stories and, uh, and it takes a minute. So uh, as we look at it, we're going to start with the back story uh, of what was going on here uh, before Jesus told uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. And that back story, uh, in, in drama, they call it the setting. Uh, adds so much to the understanding and the message uh, of this story uh, that we're going to look at. It begins, uh, like many of the things that uh, Jesus does, it begins uh, with a confrontation. I hope you leave your Bible open with me uh, this morning to the 10th chapter of Luke. We're going to keep going back to it as we work through uh, this story. The first thing that uh, we see here uh, is the, the confrontation. You, you'll notice here, that, uh, again, like many of the things in, uh, in Jesus' ministry, it begins uh, with someone trying to pick a fight, uh, trying to start a fight with Jesus, trying to uh, catch him in some kind of uh, verbal trap, trying to get him to say something uh, that they could uh, use against him. And so beginning in chapter 10, Verse 25, uh, the Bible says there, Behold a certain lawyer. Now, let me interject there. When it says lawyer, uh, it's not talking about a, a, an attorney uh, like we would think of today when we hear the word lawyer. This lawyer would have been one of the scribes that we read about uh, when the Bible talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. It says he stood up, and we see right off his motive. He stood up, and he tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? One of Jesus' favorite methods of dealing with a question is coming back with a question. What does the Bible say? He said, What does the Bible say? How do you read it? What does it say? And he said, answering, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus responds and says, You've answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. As I say, a lawyer in this time would have been a man who devoted his life uh, to studying and reading the scripture of knowing the law. He would have studied the ancient manuscripts. He would have known, he was, would have been one of the experts uh, of the time. 
he would be in our day a seminary professor. He would be a PhD. He would be a theologian uh, in, uh, in a seminary somewhere. He would be writing books. He would be uh, teaching others. He was uh, that kind of person. And so uh, when uh, immediately uh, when he comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows who he is and knows his background and knows uh, that this young man, or I say young, we don't know his age, uh, but immediately Jesus knows, uh, he knows the answer. He's already read Scripture. It's not like he just stumbled in off the street and doesn't know. Uh, he is uh, aware uh, of what Scripture says. And so he would have been an expert in the Word of God. He would have been an expert in the legal affairs uh, of the church. He would have known uh, all those things. Now, we don't know uh, one of the things that is possible considering uh, the nature of how the people, uh, in particular the scribes, the Pharisees, how they uh, treated Christ and how they acted around Him. We don't know. Uh, he may have very well, we don't know if He acted alone. Uh, he may have been hired to ask that question. He may have been part of a group that got together you know, in a football huddle and said, all right, let's come up with a good question and let's see if we can put it together in a way that will trick him. And they worked it out and they put it, and so then he was chosen or volunteered to go and actually uh, to, to ask the question. Or maybe just out of his own arrogance, maybe just out of his own being a nuisance attitude, he decided to ask uh, on his own. Maybe he's just one of those folks who likes to argue uh, and just wanted, maybe he just wanted to show up. Maybe he just wanted to uh, show what he knew uh, about the Word of God. We don't really know uh, what his motive is. What we do know is that within seconds of asking the question, he regretted it. He wished he would have never got in to that argument. Uh, again, we know from Scripture that it was, uh, he, he was tempting. He was uh, testing. We, we don't know a lot of things about how he got there, but we do know for certain why he was there. His motives were not above board. He wasn't asking because he wanted more information. He wasn't asking because he wanted to hear about eternal life. He wasn't asking because he wanted to hear the wisdom of Christ. He was asking for one purpose, and that was to tie Jesus up and to have Jesus say something uh, that they could use against him. Notice what his question is. Notice what it says there. He, he says something that is still a prevalent problem in society today. What shall I do. What shall I do? You go out and you go on the streets and you start asking people today, what, do you, what does a person have to do to go to heaven when they die? And you will start, generally speaking, you will start hearing people give you all kinds of things that they have to do. You have to go to church. You have to give. You have, I have to do this. And so we, we see his, immediately we see uh, his problem with understanding uh, how Jesus worked. What, what, what do I have to do? And so to put it simply,
actually, this young man had the idea that, like, again, so many still today, that salvation was of works. That somehow I have to do something to earn my salvation. That God is going to accept me because I have done something, because I have been good enough, because I have gave enough, because I have said this, did this, because I did this, God will accept me. He had no concept whatsoever of what God actually does. Uh, He has no concept of mercy. He has no concept of grace. He has no concept of the compassion of God. Uh, He has no understanding of that whatsoever. Everything about salvation to him, everything about inheriting eternal life to him, fell on him. What do I have to do? And he thought sure that somehow this question would trip Jesus up. That somehow by asking what do I have to do to get to heaven, to have eternal life, that somehow uh, he could show that Jesus was a false teacher, that uh, Jesus was leading people uh, away, and and, and he was going to lead them back and give people... His ambition was to have people to stop following Jesus and come back to the Pharisees, come back to the teaching uh, of the law. But in verse 26 we see that instead of answering the question, as I said a moment ago, Jesus asked him a question. He looks at it, and both of them seem to agree that the answer must be found in Scripture. They seem to agree on that point. We do have a point uh, 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 of agreement here, particularly the answer must be found uh, in the law uh, as God given it. So Jesus says to him, what does the law say? What does the law say? And so both of them again knew uh, about the law. They knew that the law uh, had been taught and that this young man or old man, this man, would have been one of the ones who was responsible for taking the Old Testament law and teaching it just as my job is to take Scripture and bring it into 2023 and make it relevant today, that was his job with the Old Testament. And so they both understood that and had, uh, had an So Jesus says, will you tell me? You tell me your interpretation. Tell me your understanding. And so immediately the, the tables have uh, been flipped. And so like you would expect this young man to do, he immediately begins to quote Scripture. Good, a good, good way to answer a question like that. He begins to quote Scripture. He quotes uh, some, uh, several passages, and he quotes Scripture. Interestingly, if you do a little digging, at some point along the way, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself quoted these exact same Scriptures. And so this man, he's, uh, he's on top of his game. He, he, he's ready. And so from both uh, of their perspectives, the law was the answer. That the law had the answer they were looking for. Love God, love your neighbor, 
above all else. And if you do what the Old Testament expects, and this love has to be a complete, can't be a half-hearted, part of the way, 50% love. Love them with all your heart. Every part of your thoughts, your emotions, every part of your being has to be involved in this love. I promise you we're going to get to the Good Samaritan. we got to get, this is extreme. Again, I never really paid much attention, I'll be honest myself, to how much this sets the tone for what this young man is about to learn. So in verse 28, Jesus again agrees with the, with the scribe, with the lawyer. He says, you're right. Now, to be honest, Christ overlooks um, a little bit of uh, the scribe's uh, twisting of things. Christ doesn't really deal with that question when the man said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He just let that slide. Even though this man is talking about salvation by works, Christ just lets that slide. I believe the phrase we would use was he had bigger fish to fry. He just lets that slide. And, uh, and so he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life would have been his question. Now, most of you understand an inheritance. An inheritance, typically, a person doesn't do anything to get their inheritance. Somebody else has to die, but typically you don't do anything to inherit something. And so uh, he uses the right word, but he uses it in the wrong way. And he's thinking the wrong thing. And so, uh, again, it, it just shows that this man hasn't completely wrapped his mind around what Jesus is saying. But Jesus says to him, you really want to see his, his real, and I hesitate to use his word, I don't know if it's arrogance or ignorance, or maybe a, a touch of both, but when he says, love the Lord like God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, love your neighbor as yourself, you see how the, how the young man, and again, I keep calling him a young man, I, I don't know, uh, do you see how he answers Jesus? He said, well, I did that. I did that. Good. I did all that. I, think about that statement. I have loved God with all my mind, soul, body, and spirit. Really? Seriously? With all, with everything you are, you have loved God. He said, I did that. Not only that. And, and, and maybe he did. Okay? But then he throws in that thing about and love your neighbor as you say. Now let's be honest. How many of y'all had some neighbors that would work you good enough? I got one right now. I mean, she just works my nerves. Okay? One thing to say love God with all, but love your neighbor as yourself? In other words, if you were both drowning, you'd get your neighbor out first? If both of your house was on fire, you would squirt water on your neighbor's house first? You have loved your neighbor. Really? 
what he said. He said, I've done all those things. I've done all those things. In other words, he believed, because he believed there was something he could do to get to heaven, he thought he had done it. Part of what was going on, let's be honest, doesn't say it here, but what he was doing was he was looking and saying, saying something like this. Well, I may, if you really dug it, I may have not loved God with all my heart, mind, so, but I loved Him more than C.D. does. That's what he was doing, really. He was saying, I'm ahead of y'all. So we see this confrontation. Now, we're going to step it up a notch because then what we see is the conflict gets extended a little bit. After he says, oh, I've done all that. I've done everything. Matter of fact, we look in, in verse uh, 29 and, and you see what, how he responds. He says, willing to justify uh, himself, he says unto Jesus, well, just who is my neighbor? What I think was going on, I don't know because the Bible doesn't say it, but stick with me and see if this makes sense to you. After Jesus says, after Jesus agrees with him, love the Lord, I got all your mind, soul, life, spirit, love your neighbor as you said. The man says, well, just exactly who is my neighbor? Now, think about it for a minute. Probably everybody in here has a different definition of neighbor. Typically, I would tell you my neighbors are Caleb and Alice, Fred, and my mom. That's my definition of neighbor. You live directly beside me. The rest of you just live in my neighborhood. Yes, I said my neighborhood. No. I've been there longer than probably everybody but free. Yeah. My neighborhood. We see car on our street. We, we, those of you who don't know, we live on a little dead end street. Somebody's on our street. We say, what are they doing on our street? Yeah. Yes, my neighborhood. But to me, a neighbor is directly. Others, you probably might define neighbor a little more. Everybody has a different definition of neighbor. And so the man says, who exactly is my neighbor? Let me tell you what I think was going on. I think in that moment, the man was beginning, I think maybe some light bulbs were starting to go off. Exactly who is my neighbor? I believe he was beginning to feel a little bit guilty. When Jesus said to him, you are correct. Love God with all your heart, mind, and whole body, and spirit, and your neighbor is yourself. Go do it. I believe in a moment... All of a sudden, he thought about that time that him and his neighbor got in a shouting match out back over the fence. That morning, his newspaper didn't get delivered, and so he went over, he was up before his neighbor, and he went over and took his neighbor's newspaper and let his neighbor think his newspaper didn't come. Something like that. In a moment, it dawned on him. I, I think he saw something that that all of a sudden he realized, you know, well, maybe I haven't loved my neighbor like I should. And so he's looking for a, an escape clause. 
Well, exactly who is my neighbor? See, if I say to you how I define neighbor, Caleb, Fred, my mom, then the rest of the people, I treat them however I want to, right? It all depends on how you define neighbor. And so he says, well, tell me exactly who is my neighbor. Maybe I haven't been loving to everybody. Just the people who live right next door. And so it feels, I believe in that moment, maybe a few little memories started running through his mind. And he saw that in that instant he realized that perfectly, completely, totally loving God and loving your neighbor was pretty much impossible. And so now he's got a problem. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you tell me. Well, to inherit eternal life, I believe you've got to love God with all your mind, soul, body, spirit, and your neighbor as yourself. Christ says, good answer, now go do it. And all of them, he said, wait a minute, what do you mean go do it? I can't do that. And so now I realize the problem. If that is the answer to the question of what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, he said, I've got a problem. I'm not going to inherit eternal life because I can't do that. I can't love God with all my heart, my neighbor, as myself. And I bet again for a moment, just in a flash in his mind, he had some pictures roll through his head. You know how that works sometimes? When your mind starts calling back those memories. How he failed to love God with all his heart, mind, soul. How he failed to love his neighbor. And then he put, started putting two and two together and realized if he failed at it, then he wasn't going to inherit eternal life. And so, surely, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he must only mean my fellow Israelites, my fellow Jews, the other scribes, the Pharisees. Surely he doesn't mean everybody when he says love them all. Surely he doesn't mean that. Surely, he doesn't expect me to love everybody. Where do you, Jesus, where do you draw the line? Who is my name? What about tyrants? Do I have to love them? Good question for, the, for this young man in this time would have been, what about the Romans? Those tyrants who are running crazy across our land and Governing us and charging us taxes. Being a scrub. What about blasphemers? Do I have to love them too? Really, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so that's why he says, who is my... He was trying his best. He knew he was guilty. But if he could narrow down that definition of neighbor tight enough... You might could get by. He was really trying to do it. He, he was simply saying, what he was doing was coming to the point where he was saying, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I'm all right. And the only way he could in, come up and meet his own answer about how to inherit eternal life was to 
not twist the law just ever so much. Take it and bend it just a little bit. Somehow, he's firing out these requirements. You've got to love God with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's, let's not even talk about the love of God. Let's just talk about the love of your neighbor. Thing. Somehow, because that's where he went. Somehow, I've got to lower the standard, alter the definition of neighbor enough to say, I made it. Let me give you an example if it was me. And I'm in this young man's shoes. Here's what I'd say. Well, my mama's my neighbor. My son's my neighbor. Tyler, Allison, Haven, my neighbor. No problem. So if I can narrow down, see, I even did it just then unintentionally. I left Fred out in bed. He's not related. If I can narrow down the definition of neighbor enough, I can make it work. I can, if I can just get it down there low enough. And that's typically what people do when they realize they've broken the law of God. Thou shalt not lie. Well, I didn't tell a big lie. It was a little white lie. Don't steal. I didn't steal much. You notice that? That's how we do the very same thing he did. We try to yeah, twist it just a little bit. I know the speed limit says 35. I'm only doing 36. Well, let me tell you something. If you're in math class, and it's one, you remember those things they did where you put the greater than and less than as? And if the number over here is 35, and the number over here is 36, 36 is greater than 35. So you broke the law. He only remember, this young man is trying to figure out how he can make an excuse. And instead of narrowing the definition of neighbor, now we come to the God story. This young man is doing everything in his power to squeeze down neighbor to, if he would have been from the south, he was trying his best to squeeze down the definition of neighbor to mama and men. Y'all know who mama and them are, right? He was trying his best to squeeze that definition down. And then we come to the story. That's why I said it's so important to understand. That's why Jesus is now going to tell this story. He's going to give him a convincing example. Look in verse 30. You know the story. Jesus answered saying, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, brought him to the inn, took care of him, and on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, said, Take care of him, whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. And so rather than deal with this man's fudging, evasive question, Jesus tells him this story. And it 
brings him to this, instead of saying, who is a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus forces him to the question for you and I today. Not who is my neighbor. The question is, more than who is my neighbor, the question is this, am I a neighbor? That's the question that this man's going to have to deal with. Notice a couple of things about this story now. It's a story of destruction. We see here that Jesus tells about a man who goes down the road. He was a traveler who, let's be honest, if we study the area, we study history, the man who is robbed was a foolish man. He was irresponsible, he was careless, he was foolish. Uh, and he was foolish because he made this journey uh, between Jerusalem and Jericho, apparently, by himself. This was known to be a dangerous road. It's the first thing we notice about this man. It's important is that he was not too small to make this journey on his own. It was a journey of about 21 miles that he had to make. And I have not been there. I have seen pictures. I have read about it, studied it. And from what I can gather, there are places on this journey as you go from Jerusalem down, literally down, uh, to Jericho, there are places where you go between rock. I mean, the, the path carries you kind of constricted where you can't run. And so it's a great place. It was a common place for thieves, robbers, uh, murderers uh, to attack travelers. It was a wild, uh, lawless area. It was a common occurrence for people uh, to get there. Uh, it, it was so bad that it was called, if you were going from Jerusalem to Jericho or vice versa, they called it the way of blood. And that's how common it was for someone to get knocked in the head uh, on this trip. And this man appears to be taken by himself. So the first thing we notice about this man is he's not always... He's not very rough. Typically, again, because of that, they would travel in groups. And so the first thing, notice about this traveler. Don't know who he was, but he was irresponsible, foolish, um, and uh, some may even argue he didn't deserve it. Uh, can you imagine with me for a moment this man making this journey by himself, getting knocked in the head, and somebody saying, well, he ought to know better. This is his. Can you imagine? Listen, you have to think real hard to think that somebody's saying that. Well, he knew better. Serves him right. You can imagine that happening, can't you? So, it was a way of destruction. It's a story of despair. As he goes along, and I find it kind of comical that the Bible says in verse uh, 31 here, by chance, by chance, it happens. That a priest comes along and sees him. And when the priest sees the man beat up, bleeding, you got to imagine he's laying in the ditch and he's, oh, help me. 
And I think it's important to notice one thing in this story. Look at it. When the priest came by, and Jesus is very clear to point out when he saw him. So the priest couldn't get later to a point where he said, What beat up man? I didn't see him. No, Jesus said, You saw him. You saw him there. And then a little later, the Levite comes along. He came, and the words that are used there, it says, if you look at it here, it says that he came and looked on him. Now the priest, it appears, was coming down the road, saw the man in the ditch, and came over here and walked around. But the Bible says the Levite came and looked on him. It appears that as the Levite was coming down the road, he heard him moaning, heard him groaning, come over in the ditch. He stops his trip and walks over and he looks in the ditch and goes, hmm, you are mess. You need to get up from there. You're going to die. And keep walking. Let me step over here for just a moment. At this point, based on everything that this young man and Christ have been talking about, here is what I think was probably going through his mind. As he listened to this story, we have a priest who puts his religious duties and work ahead of the welfare of that man. Uh, he didn't even make, as he walked down the road, he didn't even kind of look over. He went way over here. He just avoided him all together. The priest dodged him completely. The word that is used there when it says pass by on the side literally means he ran away. He wanted away from that man. Jericho was a town where a lot of the priests would live. And so they would have to travel from Jericho to Jerusalem to do their priestly duties. And he was probably on his way uh, to do duty, his job, in the temple. Now, um, and probably on his way do his evening, daily services. And it would have been about a day's journey, so he had to hurry. He didn't have a whole lot of time to hang around and help this man and get there on time. But more than that was that if he would have helped that man, he would have been considered unclean for seven days, which would have mean he would have been unable to go into the temple and do his job for a week. And he's not about to risk that. And so he goes and he runs away. On the other hand, we have a Levite. Now, a Levite was also a worker in the temple. A Levite was a man, uh, they weren't as high up as priests, but they were very, they were very high up. They were extremely privileged. They were 
more or less in charge. Um, they, they were the ones who laid out the order of service and made sure it was followed. They made sure the candles were lit. They made sure that everything, that the, the priest robes were clean. I mean, they, they made sure that the, the, the work in the temple ticked. They, they made sure that everything went on. They, over, they oversaw all the practices, all the services, everything that went on. And the, again, the words that are used there appear that, that he actually went up and... and you know, I can almost picture him going over to the man, leaning down, and checking him for a pulse. At least he had enough compassion to go over and check on him. But, I don't know, maybe he didn't want to help the man because maybe the robbers were still hanging around and they'd see him help the man and then they'd come get him. You know, I don't know. Maybe again... You know, that he didn't want to be identified with this man for whatever reason. Uh, maybe he just simply thought he had better things to do. i got to get to the temple and do my job. As Jesus tells that story, I can only imagine that in the man's mind and everybody listening, what they were expecting, because it was a common Jewish story, typically had three parts to it. They had a rhythm to it. And so we've heard about the priest, we've heard about the Levite. What this man now expects to hear is that some great Jewish man with a cape and an S on his chest comes swooping in faster than a speeding bullet, scoops up the man and rescues him. Some poor Jew making the journey is going to stop by. See, they didn't have a problem with the priest not helping because most of them didn't like the priest anyway because the priests at the time were crooks. So they expected him not to help. They weren't too surprised by that part of the story. They didn't expect the Levite to help. He was part of the same crooked outfit. You remember at one point, Jesus went to the temple and cleaned the temple, right? Run them out for their practices. They didn't like the clergy either. The Levites were part of that system, not surprised by their actions. But then we have a story not only of destruction, but then we have a story of deliverance. No one expected what Jesus was about to say. But a Certain Israelites came on. No. Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan comes along. A Samaritan? A Samaritan? You don't have to turn back to just a few pages. Not even a few pages. One page, basically. Back to chapter 9. And you will see where James and John were asking Jesus to call down fire on the Samaritans. We've talked about this numerous times about how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And it was a long, healthy hate. It went back about 400 years. 
went all the way back uh, to the Babylonian captivity. When during the Babylonian captivity, these who are now called Samaritans had married Babylonians and had married their people, began to marry the Assyrians. And so in the, Jew, in the traditional Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were... You gave them a choice between them and a donkey. They'd choose a donkey all they want. They hated the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans didn't love them either. To make it worse, they wouldn't let the Samaritans worship in their temple, so the Samaritans built their own temple. Well, that just seems reasonable to me. You won't let me worship at your church, I'll build my own church. Well, that just made the Jews matter. They hated the Samaritans. Add to that that during that time, a lot of those who were doing the robbing and the murdering of the Jewish travelers were Samaritans. So they hated the Samaritans. And so now we've got a priest. You know, problem with the priest being a jerk. No problem with the Levite. Not surprised. But the hero is a Samaritan. The hero is a Samaritan. Who's a neighbor? The hero is a Samaritan. Look with the finally at the end of the story. Jesus gives him a pinpoint application that even the dumbest, the most dense human being on earth, Jesus says, now which of these three was the better neighbor? Now remember, this all started by the question, who is a neighbor? Now the question is, am I a neighbor? Which one of these three was the best neighbor? Who was the neighbor in this story? The Samaritan. Easy to see. Anybody can see. Jesus says, you're right. Now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The hated Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite, and by implication, not you. Because which one did the priest, which one did this young man identify with? The Samaritan, the Levite, or the priest? I don't know which one, but it was either the Levite or the priest. And he says, go and do likewise. The Samaritan is the one who kept the law. The Samaritan, he is the one who loved this man as he loved himself. He was the man who showed that he loved God with all his mind, soul, body, and spirit. He was the one who did that. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. How do you do like that? The only way you love your neighbor is yourself is to love God with all your mind, soul, body, and spirit. The only way. What are we going to do with this story? Let me give you one last story here. A long time ago, several years ago, up at Princeton, one of the professors, one of the psychologists decided to do a test. Um that was inspired by the story of the Good Samaritan. So he decided 
that he would duplicate as much as possible the story of the Good Samaritan at Princeton Theological Seminary. Two psychologists got a group of seminary students together and they asked them to prepare a presentation. They gave them different topics. They gave them different uh, ideas of what to talk about. And then they were going to have to walk over to another building and give their presentation. Along the way, between this building and this building, they were going to pass a man who had apparently been injured laying by the sidewalk. So the question was, will they help him? Let me tell you how that story comes out. Before this happened, they were given a questionnaire. Why did you choose to study theology? Was it for personal or spiritual fulfillment? Are you looking for a way to find meaning in your life? Some of those kind of things. Then they were given their topics for their presentation. Some of them were literally given the story of the Good Samaritan to make their presentation on. They had to talk about the story of the Good Samaritan. Others were talked about the relevance of being a minister. There were some other topics. But one of the topics was the story of the Good Samaritan. As they got ready then to leave that building and go over to the building where they were going to make their presentation, the examiner, to some of the students, would look at some of them, look at his watch, and say, Ooh, we're late. You're going to have to hurt. To some, he looked at them and said, Oh, you got plenty of time. Take your time. Take your time. Got plenty of time. We're early. But go ahead and go that way. Now, we got folks who have said they're in the ministry for personal reasons, spiritual reasons. We've got people who have given the presentation, uh, who have studied the story of the Great Samaritan. We've got people who have get, prepared a presentation on the relevance of the ministry. Which one of those groups do you think stopped and helped the injured man? Let me tell you which one. It wasn't the ones who gave a presentation on the relevance of the ministry. It wasn't even the ones who studied the story of the Great Samaritan. Of the Great Samaritan. The Great Samaritan. I don't gave him a race. Moved him from the Good Samaritan to the Great Samaritan. Wasn't those people. You'd think that they would probably be the ones after just preparing a presentation on the Good Samaritan, seeing an injured man by the road, they would be the ones who would stop to help him, wouldn't they? In fact, having read the story of the Good Samaritan had pretty much no effect on their response whatsoever. Pretty much didn't affect In fact, the psychologist observed that one of the students who had just read the story of the Good Samaritan literally on his way over to the other building to give his presentation 
stepped over the injured man and kept walking. The only thing that really mattered in this study of whether they stopped or not was whether the student was in a hurry. If he had been told he was late, he would literally again step over the injured man. Only 10% of the group who were told they were late stopped to help him. 60%, 63% to be exact, of those who were told they had plenty of time stopped to help the injured man. Three simple words. Oh, you're late. Turn someone who was ordinarily compassionate and caring into someone who would literally step over a hurting man. So we've got a simple question this morning. Do we have time to do what is right? Will we be... The question this morning is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I a good neighbor? That's the question. Do I actually love God with all my mind, soul, body, spirit, and my neighbor as myself? Quit worrying about who your neighbor is, what color he is, what country he's from. Is he poor or rich? And start asking yourself, am I a good neighbor? Am I that kind of neighbor? That's the question. Do I love God with all my mind, soul, body, spirit? And am I a good neighbor? I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. You're here this morning. And you'd say, I have no doubt, no question, I know I've been saved. I know I have eternal life. But the question for us this morning is, are we good neighbors? Are we showing others the love of God? If we ask that cashier, you dealt with this week. If we ask that server in the restaurant this week. If we ask your actual neighbor, how would they answer that question? Am I a good neighbor? Do I love others as I love myself? But notice it begins with love God with all your mind, soul, body, and spirit. If you hear this morning, the first question you have to ask is not, am I a good neighbor? The first question you have to ask is, do I know Jesus Christ? Because I want to tell you something. 
Without Jesus Christ in your heart, you cannot and will not be the neighbor God wants you to be. Do you know Christ personally? Have you ever asked Christ into your heart to save you? Do you have a personal relationship with him? If not, you need to come. I want to show you from God's Word how you can be saved today, how you can know Jesus Christ. Christians, would you come this morning and kneel at this altar and say, Lord, make me the kind of neighbor that others could see Jesus in me. Make me the kind of neighbor that would stop and help an injured man. I don't want to be like the priest or the Levite. I want to be a good Samaritan. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful for a story that even a kindergartner can understand. Even a kindergartner can draw the lesson that you're trying to get us to see. God, I ask you to touch our hearts this morning. There's one here, one listening online. Does that know you personally? Does never ask Christ in your heart? Does the day would be your day? That they would ask you to come into their life? Not for Christians. Not Christianity has such a horrible reputation in our society today. God, help us to be the kind of believers that others see us as neighbors, that we love them, that we care for them, that we help them, that we show them your love in our actions. God, touch our hearts here this morning. We'll give you the honor for what you do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we stand together.